Welcome to the Education Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsor, Limmer Education, we can make science more accessible and understandable. Hi, everyone. Welcome to uh, the March 2023 Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Education Research Journal Club. The PCRF, remember, promotes research literacy to advance the science of EMS educational research. And here with our PCRF Journal Club, we take a closer look at some of the latest research happening in medical education. A big thank you to Limmer Education for sponsoring these podcasts so we can bring you the best of the science in education. I'm Megan Corey, and I am here with Dr. Kim McKenna, Michael Caduce, David Page, and joining us soon will be Dr. Bill Toon. Today, we're going to discuss this article that's published just this year, just January, in an open access journal, Curious. Um, and this is uh, probably going to see a word for the longest title this year, but this is the impact of the addition of virtual reality trainer on skill retention of tourniquet application for hemorrhage control among emergency medical technician students. This is a pilot study out of New York State. And uh, we want to thank you all for joining us today. Also want to remind you that uh, you can use the chat area to talk amongst yourselves. You can pop a question into the Q&A area here and we can bring them into our uh, discussion in here. We're going to have a great discussion here. So remember, too, that uh, you can quote, tag, share uh, on your favorite social media site. Anything you you like, you know, if you like what you hear, hashtag EMS research or on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA. Now, remember, if you uh, miss any of our journal clubs, you can, or maybe you have to leave a little early today, get a call, get a run out. Don't worry, you can always come back and replay the past episodes from our very own YouTube channel. And I like to subscribe, so click on subscribe if you happen to miss any of them. Uh, you you can get a, a, a you know a little list going and have uh, have a little YouTube replay session, um, and now we also have two other uh, of our podcasts that you can listen to: the clinical and operational. We have some DEI podcasts that we're just uh, run, and now in addition to this education research one, so check it out and check out all the research that we've been reviewing over the years. So a quick reminder too, and maybe I can pull in David Page here for this one. We've got an abstract deadline coming up. So uh, David Page is here with us to and and Dave, can you give us just a a big boost on getting the, that data in for this abstract deadline, June thirtieth? Yeah, uh, it is coming right up. So uh, please, 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 if you've got uh, research, we would like to help you present it, showcase it. Uh, we do a yearly research forum that's part of the EMS world. We call it the International Scientific Symposium. And if it uh, Expo this year is going to be at uh, in New Orleans, uh, September 18 through 22. So we have a category of poster presenter. And if your uh, uh, project ranks high enough, you might get an oral presentation. 
We have a special relationship with the National Association of EMTs, and EMT offers uh, stipend and uh, grant for those uh, two top trauma abstracts. And you get to, you, the authors present that at the World Trauma Symposium, as well as presenting it as part of the International Scientific Symposium, so ISS for short. Uh, come to our website, prehospitalcare.org, and submit the abstract so that it can be judged, ranked, and peer-reviewed. And we have, uh, we're, we're blessed, really, that we uh, have a new relationship with uh, Pre-Hospital Emergency Care, or PEC. Yeah. So your, uh, your work will be featured in a peer-reviewed journal and accessible through Medline also, uh, thanks to a generous uh, grant from Stryker, it is actually available as open access as well. So we would love for you to submit. This um, conference is close enough to the National Association of EMS Physicians Conference. So you can submit to both because they're close enough uh, the dates are close enough that um, you can get kind of a two for one. And we would love to see you in New Orleans. We'd love to see your work being featured as part of the PCRF. So thanks, Megan, for making sure we don't forget that deadline. It's coming up quick. Yeah. And this is, I, I really do think that when we talk about this study, you're going to realize that th this is a an elegant little study that's that's very, very doable for uh, educators out there who are wanting to dip their toe into research. And if you got a little team of people, or if, or if you need a team of people, you need some uh, advice too. We have mentors, we have associates, we have a lot of people who can help. So don't and, forget about and that. And I also shamelessly plug the fact that thanks to our sponsors, uh, we are able to offer a stipend. Yes. At, uh, the winner, uh, the best research winner, both clinical and educational, get uh, to present overseas and up to $2,000 of travel reimbursement is available for a presenter to uh, that wins best research to take that presentation and um, present it in a conference, an international conference uh, somewhere outside the US. So uh, it is a very nice uh, kind of incentive to be able to travel overseas and present your work at another conference, but even more exposure or dissemination is what we call it in research. So our job is to help you disseminate what you've learned through your research. And we love it, love it, love it, love it when you submit to us. So thanks. Great. All right. So let's dig into this study in particular. Um, this, uh, in, again, the impact of addition of a virtual reality trainer, and this is uh, on skill retention in tourniquet application. Uh, and, and this is among EMT students. So we know just from a little background that uh, I think all of us out here who are uh, listening to this know that Stop the Bleed campaign, the American College of Surgeons, um, Stop the Bleed campaign and other uh, campaigns to um, combat uh, hemorrhage and life-threatening hemorrhage early on in situations is incredibly important for patient outcome. And that includes the use of a tourniquet and tourniquet application skills. We also know that it's not enough to say, oh, any application of any kind of tourniquet is good enough. We know that it has to be correct in location 
and certainly in tightness. And those are two things that are really emphasized in things like the Stop the Bleed uh, campaign. The problem uh, that we have is even with training of EMT students um, uh, and healthcare providers is that retention of skills um, for something like even as what seemingly simple as tourniquet application is poor, uh, as we know from scores on refresher skills testing. And even after a short period of time following training, uh, we see the retention of of skills, um, you know, taper off. And certainly this seems like a simple enough skill, but those two things, location and tightness, seem to be uh, two elements that uh, that tend to uh, fall off after a certain period of time of initial training. So we also know that virtual reality has more and more been um, studied as a learning mod modality and been uh, kind of implemented. And I think that this was happening pre-COVID, but certainly COVID launched um, more research into this area and more uh, experiences, and especially in medical education, and in particular with uh, procedural skills, among other things. We'll talk about virtual reality in this. Um, it, it, it's immersive, it's engaging, and we know engagement promotes retention. It's also safe, so it's safe for the patient and safe for um, the uh, student. So instead of putting you into a high-risk environment or putting the patient at risk, um, we can simulate it in virtual reality uh, can actually uh, help with that. Um, it's also, you know, arguably, I would say sometimes a cost savings rather than having all of the physical, um, you know, constantly having the physical simulation uh, skills and exposure and instructional staff and everything else, having a virtual uh, addition to it, um, you know, is shown to be helpful in some circles and certainly in medical education. But a lot of this research is really developing so these researchers were in New York State. This uh, they had, um, uh, and I'll look at. You can look at their research aims. They're looking at EMT students. So this was a prospective, randomized, single-blinded study, and the blinding happens at the end with the evaluators. But they they really asked the question: Can an immersive virtual reality experience um, added on to this in-person training that occurred, the initial training uh, of EMTs, can it decrease their errors? in the tourniquet placement that we know usually happen uh, later on when we try to retest them during refresher uh, training on their retention testing. So it's retention testing is what they're looking at. So their primary objective was looking at the addition of tourniquet placement VR immersive uh, refresher uh, to the existing EMT course after a period of time. And we'll go through their protocol in a second. Would that improve their ability to actually apply the tourniquet and the retention of those skills um, among those EMT students? And then secondarily, they wanted to look at, can it decrease errors? So the errors that we look at, the two in particular that we talk about, the placement error, location, and the tightness. And then, um, of course, the, the last, uh, another secondary objective and uh, this one uh, always makes me smile because I know Dave and I are going to have a lot to say about this, but determining how the student feels, the perceptions, the comfort, the feedback from the students about using virtual reality as the modality to learn um, the tourniquet placement skills. So uh, we see a lot of, you know, opinion surveys and everything, and, and it's always nice to add that in as part of your um, study. So this is, I don't know, Kim or Dave or um, Michael, if you went to the site, 
but um, I went to the site and did this. Did you guys do? Oh, you, you have to, right? You have to go to it and actually see what the training is. I would really recommend, this is an open access article, you guys, you can, everybody can, uh, you know, go get this article and there's a link right in it to a YouTube and you can play that. It's very short, actually. It's only maybe seven minutes long or something. And it has three elements that you go through and you can see what the actual intervention was. Um, they use a program uh, called VR Train, I believe, and it's and they go through the elements of this training, uh, so you can see what the actual um, the intervention group went through. But essentially, they had three classes of uh, three class sections of EMT students. Um, you know, Kim will come in later and talk a little bit about some of the issues, maybe with the study itself. You know, do and this and the authors do as well. But they ran. They had initial training on hemorrhage control. They had their EMT training, and then, um, and that's done early in the program, from what I understand from reading the article. Then they randomized the the students to a controller VR group and explained the study to them. And then they had three phases. Basically, they had the initial assessment, which is on day zero. And keep in mind, they're still in EMT school. They're not done with EMT school. They're in EMT school. Day zero, the intervention period on day 35 is when the VR group goes through this intervention. The control group doesn't go through any intervention. They don't have any sort of additional training. And then the final assessment is day 70, just before they do what's called an open lab that precedes their EMT final exam. That's the way I've kind of understood it. This was between September and December, 2021. So I wanna bring Michael in here because he teaches EMT and he also has experience with um, research and doing research with this class. So, uh, Michael, can you tell us about what you think about the, you know, the methods and, and did I explain that appropriately? Oh, you're, you're muted. Yes, I thought you explained that wonderfully. Um, the one thing I kept thinking as I was reading this is this is a great demonstration of continued competency, which is something as initial education um, educators, we all care about, right? I'm going to teach this to them today. Are they going to remember it a month from now, two months from now? So, so I really appreciate them taking this on. I think it's important to recognize we do this in all kinds of different skills. The American Heart Association spends a lot of time trying to figure out how do skills degrade? How long do you stay competent in a skill? Is this a two-year recertification cycle really the best? And uh, overwhelmingly, it sounds like, no, that's not the case. We probably should be doing continued competency training more regularly than that. So I think this is an important study to start to recognize these are really important skills to maintain, but probably much less frequent than many of the other skills that we teach in EMS. So uh, this might be described as a, a low frequency, high, high risk or high drag skill that they really need to stay competent in. Um, so I, I thought it was important to recognize that. Um, in terms of methods, I was thinking when I was reading this, we do this all the time when we look at new um, clinical practice. We don't publish it, which, um, you know, congratulations to the author on publishing yeah. a study like this. But we look at this when we're saying, hey, we need to look at a new technique in the classroom. We're going to add a skill. We're going to add technology to the classroom. We typically do some comparisons at the end of the class to say, OK, did it did it work? Are we doing good practice in the classroom? So I thought this is a great model set up for someone who's looking at saying, hey, we're thinking about adding some VR to our classroom. We don't know how to measure it, how to determine if it really works. Here you go. You could follow this without too much trouble. I mean, they used a sim man, a Laredale sim man. They used a cat tourniquet. All of those mm -hmm. things we have in our classroom. So I think if you were looking to say, where do I start thinking about adding VR to my classroom? This study just provided you the methods on how to do it. 
And interesting, they they used the SIM man, but they 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 talked about really not the if, for those of you out there that say, well, I can't afford a SIM man. Um, they use the uh, the arterial bleed adjunct that adds on to it. So um, could you technically do something else um, with that? I'm certain you could. I mean, we've we've talked on this podcast about low fidelity. Um, you know, simulation. And we recently looked at that article in PEC that compared the different types of CE and the low fidelity simulation came out pretty, uh, you know, strongly as a, as a method. Kim? I was just going to say one of our uh, training officers built a bleeding simulator using, um, um, oh, those swimming uh, tubes, you know, yes. styrofoam swim tubes and, you know, created it with, you know, with the IV bag with the blood in it and that, and it, you know, it, it's low fidelity, but it was very um, perfect for what we needed. So funny story. We had somebody do, do the same thing uh, with those tubes, but the, the one type they, the first time, first time around, they bought a type that had these little pieces of foam inside of it. So the minute they started puncturing it, all these little pieces of foam came flying out. So yeah, know, know your swim noodles <laughs> before you, before you venture on that one. But yeah, that's a, that's a, those are all kind of, um, you know, good models. Um, okay. So getting back to the, the, uh, study itself. So we've got these 40 EMT students and we've got them allocated. Um, Dave, did you have something? Yeah. Um, this, I'm just, you know, since we're talking about methods, I thought that it was mm -hmm. pretty interesting. They blinded. They, when I read that at first, I was like, how did they, it's very rare to see uh, blinded studies in education, right? Because um, the participants are uh, you, they'll know if they're using the goggles or not, right? Mm -hmm. You can't, it, it's not like a placebo control double blind study where the um, the person doing the evaluation and the person doing the, having the intervention knows which intervention they're getting. So the students are not blinded, the raters were blinded. Exactly. Um, and I thought that was really kind of cool um, because it, um, it, it, you know, randomized and blinded are sort of ding, ding, ding words in research that say, wow, these folks went to a, quite a bit of trouble to uh, randomize who got the training and to make sure that the people who are rating didn't, weren't aware of, of uh, the kinds of trainings uh, that they were getting. So uh, kudos to the authors. That was a, that was a sharp uh, little extra step to, to keep the uh, neutrality and decrease the Hawthorne effect, you know, the effect that we know if the raider knows they were having one or the other, they might have bias. Yeah. And I think about that too, Dave, would you, when would you randomize as well? Um, I thought about that as they were going through, they chose to randomize, you know, they had the initial uh, skills test and pre-survey and then they randomized and, but then they didn't do the actual intervention for a little while, um, you know, after that, I think it was 30, 35 days is when they had the actual intervention and everyone knew, you know, which group they were, but they didn't, um, you know, the, the you had to think they're, they're studying many other things too. They're not you know, just going to drill down on this one thing and say, well, I'm going to study this one thing because they're still in EMT school, which, which in, you know, looking at that, I thought, you know, that actually was pretty smart because the, the EMT student's not going to just pay attention to hemorrhage control the whole time, knowing they're in a study that they've got, you know, medical emergencies and other things that are going to cloud them. So the odds are they're not going to do extra study for this. So, you know, I mean, it's hard to, to actually assume that, but 
Yeah, that's that's a really good point. But the blinding is a great point. We actually looked at another study um, a while back on hybrid simulation, and one of the best things was when they evaluated them. They the it was actually physicians evaluating the performance of airway techniques in the OR. They didn't know which group each of the students belonged to, and it made the results so much more powerful to look at that because you knew that those physicians didn't know. Now they do mention later that they did have some issue with, you know, interrated, possibly interrated reliability problems because the evaluators, uh, you know, were different for each class. They, they did some of that. They did try to control for that by having, you know, training and that kind of thing. But, you know, that's just something to think about. And again, that's why we were talking before this started, why the term pilot study comes up, I think, in this. Okay, so let's look at the groups themselves, because we know once you randomize to two different groups, we want to know we're comparing apples to apples with anything that can influence the outcome. And uh, the prior experience here, so it shows the age, the uh, gender, and those are all, you know, pretty equivalent you know, average of, you know, young people here, uh, 22, 23 years old, equal number of people in each group approximately, and then 71% um, uh, uh, male uh, not surprisingly, an EMS kind of consistent with what we see nationally. Prior experience has to do with prior experience with VR. That's actually a really important one. As somebody who has an Oculus headset and who started doing VR <laughs> on my own kind of uh, for the last year or so, um, prior experience uh, is a big deal. It takes a little bit to actually kind of get used to it. So knowing whether the groups were equivalent with prior experience, I think was uh, really important. I don't know about, um, you know, the people that were not, I don't know that, that one sort of is, is kind of eating at me. I don't know at what you think Mike or uh, about this or Dave or somebody, um, but prior experience with VR in the VR group to me, it makes a difference. You know, I'm wondering if that, this was a larger study, if you, if you could look at those, um, that subgroup and see if that mattered, uh, you know, how much time, because I, I know we did, we were participants, our site was participants in one of the studies on VR that Aaron Donathan ran, and they actually had them, get, gave them a time period to all of the students to just have fun with it, play with the VR, have fun with it, learn it, see if you can, before they ever launched the study, so that everyone kind of got the whole how do things work and do I get nauseated and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, when I was reading this study, I was like, oh, prior experience. Um, I feel like the older I get, the more I'm unattached to what my students understand. I'm like, gosh, that seems almost half your students have, have used inoculus gla glasses, have, have, been, have used these. And I'm like, I would have thought it would have been a lot lower. Um, so I do certainly think it probably benefits you having some experience with it. Um, but the fact that it's only 41% or 38% is higher than I would have thought. But um, hopefully they're, they're, you know. I don't think it'll impact the results a whole ton, but um, definitely worth noting in your study because a lot of people would read that and see past experience with EMS and mm -hmm. not necessarily past experience with VR. With VR. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, it, um, yeah, you know, I, I don't quite know what to make of it, actually. I sit on both sides of the fence. I kind of go, um, I do think, uh, uh, let me clarify. I think it's great to do run-in periods where people get used to whatever it is that you're using for simulation. 
um, high fidelity mannequins are famous for you don't quite actually inflate the blood pressure cuff that comes with a mannequin exactly like you would with an, a real adult, or you don't listen in the right in the exact spots. You have to actually learn where the pulse, where to feel a pulse. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know how to do that, then you know giving you a grade as to how quickly you find a pulse would be ridiculous. So I do think familiarity with the equipment is good, um, and we don't use VR in the real world, so. Uh, this this is where you know your experience using VR may or may not be useful for putting a tourniquet on, but the, the experience with the medium um, does uh, indicate sort of a favor to one or another, and uh, I think the most significant part of this this one graph is or the table is that it's it's equal, so uh, there's no significant difference between the two groups. Uh, when you compare two groups, you want to make sure that they're kind of groups that are similar. And luckily, in this case, there are groups that actually have similar uh, levels of experience. Yeah. Um, the the use, I, I think you've said a lot there, Dave, with the simulation and anyone out there that, that runs uh, simulation or is thinking about it with the high fidelity mannequins that get pulses and everything. There is a pattern to it. And I've found that uh, over the years, we've started doing even when we do this, we, we have these orientation sessions with the mannequins. So they know this is what it feels like to feel the radial pulse. This is what, it, and it's only on the left side in a Lairdall mannequin. And this mannequin has carotids. This one has better femorals. Um, because if you're going to judge that they, how fast they recognize the patient went into cardiac arrest, for example, or got ROSC, if they don't know how to feel that in the mannequin, um, then it's, you know, that that's a tough thing. So it, it, it definitely, you know, matters in, in how you're judging your students. Uh, welcome Dr. Bill Toon. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about the methods or uh, of this study or, uh, the grouping here. Nope. I'm good. You know, Dave talks. And so that covers everything. Okay. <laughs> Uh, we've got our, um, I think Dave said a lot too about that, you know, if you're doing this research and um, being able to do something like this, it, I mean, you could, if you haven't seen it yet, it kind of sees, it, it jumps out that this is a very doable study, even if if you're just starting to get, um, you know, cut your teeth at research. Uh, this, these are small groups, but I think, you know, they're small groups because of a lot of limitations that we can talk about in a little bit. But there's three classes of students, so you see them uh, equivalent, you know, randomization. So let's get into um, the results then, in case, unless anybody has anything else to say about the, the way that the study was done. I think we pretty much um, covered that. So this is the first, you know, figure of their results. Um, Mike, I was wondering what you thought of, since you, friend, uh, you're actually getting ready to launch a, a simulation, uh, or is it a VR study that you're in or a simulation study? Um, a simulation study, we're going to use some tablet designed um, tourniquet education. So we're going to do a very similar study to this in looking at retainment of tourniquet application, um, whether people that get training at 30 days through an interactive application improve their tourniquet efficiency, recognize errors, things like that. Um, so the, we're going through a very similar process. So reading their methods, I was like, oh, some of this sounds very familiar. They won't have glasses per se, but it'll be an application-based interactive 
Um, there's probably a fancier way to say it, but in essence, it's an application that's gonna walk them through a story and provide some training along the way. So um, in terms of the, uh, the results here, um, I, I, was, uh, I was like really hoping that we would get some big result and be like, ah, this really, um, you know, blow the doors off, get inoculus glasses in every EMT classroom and then follow up with it. Um, they didn't find a difference in initial tourniquet um, skills performance. There's no significant difference, which um, I do think accepting your null hypothesis does add to the value of the literature. This is a smaller yes. study, but it's a really well done study. They really put the time and you can tell in their writing into the methods to making sure that they followed as many good scientific evidence-based processes that they could. Um, so I was sad that they didn't find a difference, but again, you they should keep going right it's a pilot study they need a bigger sample size where i think you could start to see the nuance and start to see the difference um in their results so um i'll i'll leave it up to you to share what the the additional results because they proved a lot more but uh, it's yeah. sort of, like broke my heart that they didn't prove that there was this big <laughs> the inoculus glasses um substantially improve tourniquet error recognition I, they did find some interesting details, like Mike said. So we're seeing the VR group on the left here, and this is figure two, um, which shows the, you know, basically pie charts of, you know, the uh, numbers of uh, comparing the failed uh, percentages in VR versus the control, uh, but also then the the reason for failure. Um, and so that's the, this is the first uh, of the figures. Then we have the um, logistic regression analysis. So this is when they start looking at, you know, starting to kind of tease through. And actually, if you can explain, can somebody uh, kind of make it simple for what is logistic regression for some of the people that are out there saying, oh, well, I could do this study, but I don't know what this means. This is too much statistics for me. Have a well, I mean, go ahead, David, go. <laughs> Because that's what uh -huh. I see. That's what this is what we see. Actually, we see people reading the research and going, okay, these pie charts, I get it. Then you put up this and they go, oh yeah, research is beyond me. Which is why, by the way, we have people like Remley Crow and right. Brandis, right? And experts. I was gonna throw <laughs> uh, Bill Toon under under the bus and just go like, hey, uh, since he was throwing <laughs> me under the bus and we like to rib each other, I'm like, I'm happy for him to talk. Um, what happened to the tough topic there, Bill? Um, <laughs> so, uh, logistic regression involves uh, a, a regression involves taking a series of variables and and thinking, uh, okay, the thing that I'm comparing. So, uh, if you think about in this case whether it's the speed of uh, uh, at which the tourniquet was applied, whether it was applied correctly, whether the um, it was the correct location and you compare it to the variables that you think might make a difference. So uh, in this case, VR versus no VR, and you, you regress, meaning uh, uh, in this case is a good thing. You, you, you're, you're going back and looking backwards and going, okay, did that variable matter to this variable? Did that variable matter to this variable? Uh, and then you try to uh, find that variable that mattered uh, so in, in, um, I hope I explained it, uh, was that the way you were going to explain it, Kim? Yeah. Okay. Good <laughs> enough. Um, good. she's nodding her head going, don't put me on camera, Tiny. Like, but yes, 
I, I think um, I think that here uh, odds ratios. It's important to explain odds ratios. An odds ratio of one means that um, there's there's uh, the the uh, probability that the the relationship will reoccur is uh, absolutely like a hundred percent. So in the case of incorrect tightening of tourniquet, the uh, odds ratio uh, is one, uh, which is, uh, you know, if it were like here, utilize, utilization of gloves is 2.9. So uh, people who had no VR were two or three times, 2.9 times more likely to utilize gloves. Whereas people using VR were 8.9 times more likely to uh, utilize gloves. And so they're comparing these odds ratios uh, and seeing if they're of statistical significance. And that, that matters. Uh, so uh, significance, we can get into a little bit, but it, it here um, uh, we're just wanting to maybe talk about how that the, the, it's a it's a measurement of the likelihood that you will see this pattern recur, mm -hmm. whether it's by chance or uh, whether you can trust that it might be because of the intervention. So it's uh, it, and one of the other things I, I'd like to say uh, just about something like this, again, getting to really encouraging people to be involved in, in research. W one of the things is you may be asked uh, as an educator by a company or by somebody who is part of a, a research project, um, you know, like Aaron Donathan and the VR study or, you know, or others who are looking at multiple sites. And I just want to encourage people to say yes, <laughs> say yes to research. I'm going to keep saying that. It's a good byline. Say yeah. yes yeah. and participate in it. Yeah. It, it, it. Believe me, it's, 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 I understand it. I work full-time in teaching and it's, it, there's very little time here and there but it is the most rewarding experience to be a participant in a study. Your students really learn from it. They learn the value of research. It's just great. And the other thing is if you are somebody who wants to get involved in, and you feel like you can handle the methods and you can do the implementation, but then you hit a wall when you don't know how to evaluate, um, you know, where can we turn Dave and Mike and those who are, <laughs> there are people to turn to at the PCRF. We have 40 mentors standing yeah. by that uh, would all love to be able to help you figure out how and where to do research and where, which experts to consult for which types of studies. And it isn't always the same expert that knows everything about everything. So um, we, uh, we're lucky to have people who are great with uh, epidemiology, but also some that uh, are more in the uh, qualitative side of the, uh, uh, you know, not, not measuring numbers, but more uh, uh, quality mm -hmm. uh, research, so uh, or qualitative research, interviewing and, and gleaning uh, experiences that are not necessarily numeric. But um, I, I did want to just mention on this table, uh, you, you know, numbers that jump out, big differences that jump out, like incorrect tightening of the tourniquet. Mm -hmm. Here, uh, you know, there's it, the group that was doing VR was 12.27 times more likely to incorrectly tighten the tourniquet than the people who were doing um, uh, no VR. Uh, so that's interesting. Um, it's kind of a, kind of a 
maybe intuitively correct if you learn to do this without actually pulling on something and having the feedback, the, um, the haptic feedback of feeling the, the tightening of the tourniquet, mm -hmm. that's something that you might not feel when you're doing this with virtual reality. So you're not physically pulling on anything. That makes sense. And then uh, the p-value being significant is starred for us, uh, thankfully. Uh, so it's not only uh, significant in terms of the difference, but it's statistically significant um, and reported as such. So um, that these two things are uh, kind of interesting. I'm still trying to make heads or tails of why people who do, do VR would more be, be more likely to wear gloves. <laughs> Yeah, me too. I, but you know, back the 12 times more likely, they were 12 times more likely to fail compared to their first attempt. So, um, and if you look at the video, um, the video makes it look, it doesn't ever make it look like there's no, the images to me don't look like it's getting tighter. Like, you know, like if you were to have it over clothing and see like it kind of start to pucker up or something, to me, it almost looks like there's a loose loop on the video. And, I, and you know, so you wonder if, you know, there's that sort of dual channel processing and 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 so they're, they're seeing through their visual channel, you know, like, oh, that doesn't look too tight because they, you know, they, in their first attempt, they were less like 12 times less likely to fail because of that, because the instructor probably told them just crank on that before you start turning that windlass there, you know, that. Um, and so I, I wonder if that had something to do with it, just that visual thing. And even though during the scenario, the, the simulated patient goes, ouch, that's too tight, <laughs> you know, after they apply it. But you know, they point out actually in the limitations in the analysis, just exactly what you said, David, that that the haptics aren't there. You know, they didn't really get that sense of how tight is tight. And that is a big limitation of a lot of simulation right now. Like, you know, Megan mentioned, you know, that you can feel pulses on some of the mannequins, but they don't, they feel a little more mechanical than they do on a real person. And and so it's going to take a while, I think, for that those haptics really to get to the point where they're going to really be able to simulate in the way that some of the other techniques that we use do. Yeah, I found that um, in, in this table, uh, it, I was confused about using positive uh, terminology and negative terminology, like correctly applying the tourniquet, incorrectly tightening of the tourniquet. Mm -hmm. um, and so that they did, I it, it did that part confuse me. Uh, and you using gloves, which is not, or verbalizing the bleeding stopped. Um, and that was that was not done on the VR side, so it was there was no difference. Um, but it, it it did confuse me the some of the ele the the elements here being positive and negative. 
Mm-hmm. I wanted to add to what Kim said in this. They did it on the first attempt, but when they were brought back in, was the struggle point. I don't oftentimes think of tourniquet application as, as a skill that we have to continue to do competency on. It's not intubation um, where there's some serious ramifications to your patient. I don't think of it that way. This study really demonstrated they're having skill degradation. They're losing the ability to do this skill. Um, so I really appreciated that. Um, they said in the VR group as well that the improper tightening of the tourniquet had six errors, but there were uh, improper location was for three, three people had improper location. So that makes me wonder too, again, we need to continue doing this competency training on tourniquets. It, it wouldn't be something at the top of my list to do continued competency on. Um, but this study demonstrates that there probably is a need for that, that they are degrading, the skills degrading without practice. Yeah, I am really actually this is depressing if a simple skill is this degrading then complex skills are probably worse right yeah yeah and i i think it's uh that's why i said a seemingly simple skill that tightness doesn't surprise me again that you know getting to the haptics there are um there's new technology and and kudos to the authors too in the end when they talked about um, the need for increasing the 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 haptic, you know, feedback to um, the student, and because the bottom line is, we're not going to be get to you're not going to get to practice this on a real patient. You're going to have to practice it in a simulated setting, and multiple levels of simulated setting uh, can be helpful. It can also be feasible and more productive to have you know students able to do something with a VR headset while you commit an, an instructor to a live simulation with something else, you know, it, it's a productivity issue too. It's a, it could be actually, people think of this as expensive, but it could be cost savings. If you can have students, six students with VR headsets doing something while another group of six is with you doing, you know, the, the standard tourniquet application. So it's, it, there's some of that as well. You're going to have to have that, but the haptics are improving. So there are not just gloves, but there are now technologies where a headset can actually detect your hands. And so when it comes to that, now we're getting there. If that can be applied to something like this, we can get to what Kim and Mike were talking about, which is, you know, the ability to pull and get that feedback that it's not tight enough or that it's too tight. It's kind of like the, the puck in the cardiac arrest um, now you can do CPR with the trainer, um, pads and it tells you push harder, push yeah. harder. I mean, I pull harder, pull harder. CPR, yeah. Yeah. Pull up, pull up. Yeah. Uh, if you're, if you're, if you're familiar with that, <laughs> that thing, the pilots are checking when you get yeah. on the plane. Um, yeah, you know, uh, there are much more complex skills that are high, high um, highly, uh, sorry, low frequency, high acuity and criticality. Uh, like how often do we actually put on a tourniquet and how often do we do compressions and the intricacy of feeling somebody's chest wall and pushing down at the right depth uh, is is as complex, I think, as your fingers feeling I'm tightening in this until I, you know, see that the bleeding is stopped. And uh, maybe in the future, uh, those simulators and the even the mannequins that we use will be better at this, but mm-hmm. at the moment, I think it's a tighten until you, you know, you can't and you, it stops. 
I had the, when I was reading this stuff on the haptics, I kept reminding myself the importance of what we say in the lab, which is as you find it, as you find it, as you find it, drilling the student back. I've seen some VR come out on intubation training. And this just reminds me, you don't really understand how much effort it takes to raise the patient's jaw with intubation. That seems like something you might be able to do with the handheld devices, but the force and the strength that, that it takes to do that mm-hmm. plays a pivotal role in that skill. I'm also thinking palpation the veins of a patient versus even our best mannequins. There's definitely a nuance. There's a difference there. So I just kept thinking the importance of in our initial education labs and our continued education, um, the importance of making sure your simulations reflect what you want and not just talking through cases or every time the student wants a blood pressure, they turn to the instructor and ask for it. Mm -hmm. Um, That just kept, I, I put on my Alex Tremley hat for a minute since he's out today and thought on the continued education side, this is just as important if for running a simulation, that we have it set up and ready to give the feedback to the student or the providers we want it to be. So um, yeah, I just kept thinking about all those other times that we haptics really do play a role in our labs. Yeah, very much. So the next uh, chart that they put up in this one, before, I was able to... Go ahead, before Bill. Into that, I just wanted to touch. Can you hear me okay? Yep. I just wanted to touch on, I, I wanted to touch on two things. I love everything that's been discussed right now, but it, it is really interesting with as simple as you think the tourniquet is, is I, my experience is that it's, I don't think it is that simple, particularly uh, if they, it when you look in the, the training kits and half the stuff is still wrapped in its original plastic, you know, it, it shows how much the tourniquets are really being used, but how much can someone even trouble through the tourniquet if it wasn't reconnected correctly that will operate um, and then how we train them and the one thing we can't train them is how tight is tight enough because you can't put it on someone's arm before that hurts too much but they still got a great pulse you know mm-hmm. so it's it, it there is a lot of interest there with that and and I wonder this gets me to my next thing how much of any skill needs to be repeated during the course of a program to truly, achieve the level of competency we want in them with whatever the skill might be from cracking open the oxygen bottle that may take two or three times and people seem to do that a hundred percent but i don't know if we really know and i don't know if it's important that we know what that number is but i i do think we don't we don't really know what that the what competency is for every we teach I'm glad you say that, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that 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 number is important to know because it may not be the number. It may be the multiple methods, um, which we see in some. And Kim, I think, can comment on this. And a lot of the teaching in higher ed literature, it's more about the use of multiple modalities um, of teaching rather than just. Uh, you know, one type of skills assessment. And that's, again, what I think we're going to start seeing, and we already are starting to see with virtual reality and AI and augmented reality and chat GPT, as much as English teachers hate it and and history teachers, it's actually, um, you know, how can all of those things be used to enhance learning and enhancing learning, meaning enhancing retention. So that that that'll be an interesting, you know, area. Of, of research is uh, the addition of the addition of multiple methods um, and and in continuing education 
So, uh, yeah, and then how to measure that, how do you translate that into the translational science? How do you translate that into clinical practice outcomes of patients, um, you know, all of those like downstream outcomes? Uh, it, does that make a difference? And, and that that's another really interesting area for research and necessary and being called upon. So this figure shows the amount of errors um, for each of the three classes. So comparing the classes and the and number of errors, because they were very interested in that, you know, one of their uh, outcomes was, or the objectives was to look at, is there a difference in the errors? And they did, the, the, this one was just comparing the classes. And um, I'm, I'd like to bring in Kim for a second about the limitations of the study and the, and the numbers, because we were talking before we started. Um, and I think this chart says it all, it really is, says it more than the other ones about the limitations of the study. Well, they just, you know, they, and the authors acknowledged this, that they just really didn't have enough subjects really to detect meaningful differences between groups. And um, because um, the class enrollments were down for the EMT classes related to the COVID pandemic. And so typically um, what, uh, not, I won't say typically, because most people don't do it, but really great researchers, um, who I am not one of, if you had a really great methodologist, they would do something called a power calculation before you would even start the research. And that power calculation would say, how many uh, participants do we need to have in our study or in each group to be able to detect a difference that is not only statistically significant, but that would show the, the size of effect that we're hoping to show. And uh, they acknowledge that because of the small class enrollments, they, they didn't have that, you know, a large enough group to be able to do that in this study. And hence, it's called a pilot study because mm -hmm. they probably would want to repeat it. I mean, the study design, I think, is really great. They took a lot of care to make sure that there were no differences between the groups that they had and they randomized it and the final raters were trained and they were blinded, but they just didn't have enough participants to really feel confident, I don't think, in their results. Yeah, I I, um, I love the way you said that. So it, it's, and I just want to thank the authors again for uh, publishing this because a lot of times people will say, well, I had small groups and I don't think it was, you know, and taking it to publication and I don't know, and, and getting it out there gets the methodology out there, um, for others. It also gets the, you know, the kind of word out there about, um, you know, how to do a study like this. So, so a pilot study is, is very publishable and, and getting it out there for others to, to participate in, in this kind of research. Um, so I think it was interesting that they kind of concluded too that the VR group showed the failure of haptics, which is, you know, the feel of the pulling of the tightness of the tourniquet. And again, because of the limitations of the VR used and, and what we talked about, that wasn't surprising. But I thought it was also interesting that they said the control group was that their type of failure was a failure of steps. Because VR and, um, you know, computer-based, whether it's the headset or you're using a computer-based program, um, but but even the immersive VR, you can. The, one of the things, one of the things you can gain out of that is the more immersive practice of the steps of a procedure. 
of, uh, so that's, um, and, and that's, you know, you can do that with a mannequin, you do that with simulation, but we talk about that with simulation, um, being able to, you know, what, what is it that you're gaining out of it? It's not that you're gaining the reality of the real vomit coming out of the airway or the real, you know, blood that's coming out of the patient, but you're getting the, um, workflow down, right? This is my workflow. When I do encounter this, the teamwork, um, you know, even the affective domain, which is a, a totally separate subject, but you can actually, you know, practice that in simulation. Now we're just taking that set and saying, can they, can we have other types of simulated practice, like a virt in a virtual setting or an AI setting so that you can, you know, do practice with things like death notification in an, in a setting where you're getting feedback from, from something, somebody else in a virtual kind of, um, environment. In this case, it was procedures, but, you know, there's all kinds of uses for it. Yeah. And I think, you know, th that sort of speaks to what you said earlier, you know, how we've all taught something to a group and they haven't learned it or they haven't learned part of it. And so we're going to use a different strategy and, you know, reteach it, have them practice again in a slightly different way, because you get to different pieces of understanding by doing different things. And so, you know, that it, you've got to pick the right tool for the job. And so maybe VR is the right tool for procedural steps in this case. Yeah. And that's exactly it. What is the purpose of using this me educational method has always got to be asked, right? And and um, to your point too, you can teach, um, and we experience this, teach pharmacology class that teaches the basics of pharmacology in the fall semester. They come in in the spring semester and, and they don't remember a lot of the cardiac drugs, but the minute they hit the clinicals and they're coming back and they're doing simulation and they're seeing real patients, suddenly they want to go back and, you know, can I look at that, those slides again from the first semester about the cardiac meds? Because now I think I'm getting it. Um, so no, without context, it's not, you know, uh, maybe gelling uh, in their brains. So uh, and speaking of gelling in their brains, this one, this made me completely think of Dave because we sort of laugh about these sort of things, but I think it's always great when a study does a look at the, you know, the primary objective, which is what does it change behavior? Does it change the actual clinical practice um, or the improve their skills performance? And then you, the actual survey of students, which is, you know, how did you think? What did you think about this? Um, I, I always like studies that mix the two of those and don't just look at, you know, what was the impact of doing this cool thing on whether the students really like doing this cool thing, you know? Well, I guess they really like doing this cool thing. But when you add that on to whether they think that it improved their performance, and you look at, did it improve performance? That, I love those kind of studies. We looked at that one in the hybrid simulation and they almost always come out like this. <laughs> I did I, great. I, I love that you brought it up because you know, it's like, well, I'm glad that you love putting people on backboards, but it doesn't really change their outcomes, you know, kind of thing. And I'm, I'm glad you loved learning uh, this way, but in fact, you didn't some students would love sitting in a classroom without having to pay attention to a person droning on about something they're lecturing about, and it didn't really change their education anyway. But they loved it because they told a bunch of great jokes. So it's not, you know, I, I don't know that satisfaction is everything, is what I'm, I guess I'm saying. 
I was going to say, I was thrilled that they were excited about it. I think half the battle sometimes is getting the students to the classroom. Um, and if they're, this at least shows that they're not bored and they're not depressed about coming to class, that you're actually engaging with them. Um, I appreciate that they asked, did you find it interactive and engaging? To me, that says you were excited to come to class and making education fun um, is sort of the first battle in getting them in the seats. So uh, I like that. I think I thought of the Dunning-Kruger effect when I saw the address wrote down overconfident. Um, is the VR glasses making you think you know what you're doing more than what you do? Um, the, we probably can't articulate that in this study due to the sample size, but something I would think about in the future is we're telling you you're great, um, but can you prove it? So. so this just made me think of, you know, that. <laughs> you know that. Oh, sir. Go ahead, Bill. No, no. And ladies first, please. <laughs> so this made me think of those Kirkpatrick levels of evaluation, right? The first level is reaction. Did they like it? And it is an important level because, mm -hmm. you know, you want people to be engaged, but then, you know, the next level is learning. Did they learn it? And in this case, the answer was mm, some things they learned and some things they didn't. And then the next level would be transfer. Could they transfer it actually into a real life setting? So that's higher, harder to evaluate. And then finally, does it change the outcome of the patient or, or something else in your system? So I think while it, it does make you chuckle because some people use this as the only measure of success of something, it is not the only measure. It is the start. Yep. Bill? So. Am I there? I don't. Oh, yeah, I am. So, um, what I think this is, what this talks about, the, the liking, I think it's no different than when you ask a crew how that resuscitation go, you know, a, a, a crew, and you're doing a postdoc, and I said, we hit it, and you're getting the PTOs in that and you can look at their pauses, and you can, um, extrapolate the other data off of the information and share it with them, then they go, oh, maybe we ended up with the outcome we did because we weren't as good as we thought we were. I think mm -hmm. there's still a lot of that that exists as people think, hey, at myself, I did a great job. And then if there was a video of you, you may not feel that way. That they um, they get the, the taste of reality, you know, that their performance wasn't what it was. So we shouldn't set people up with false expectations. Yeah, and and I th um and you were broken up a little bit there, but I think we got the point too. That uh, you know, using uh, and using the resuscitation example is a good one. It's it, sometimes it sets up a behavior though in a in a practice and in a student when when you, um, you know, how do you handle that when it seems to argue within the student that, wait a minute, I felt good. So if I didn't do well, it must be the test or something like that, you know, coming from a student perspective, Kim. I, I was just going to say, it's an opportunity to sort of compare, like, if you measure that before, like they felt like, great, like they got it and then they fail, then to be able to compare the two and, you know, maybe where was the disconnect, it might help to build their metacognitive skills. 
Exactly. I was just going to say that the students need to know what to expect. And if they know that the, that all of these things are a part of their learning um, from the get go, I think it makes a big difference. And you avoid that sort of um, defensiveness about, well, you know, something must be wrong with the, the test since I felt this way. Um, and to Dave's point, we hear that quite a bit, you know, from students here and there. Well, I really like it when I learn best by um, I like it when, and I don't know how many times you always hear, I'm a visual learner. Everyone's a visual learner um, and a kinesthetic learner. Um, we already know that, that those are really good uh, ways to, to engage and, and other things. But uh, students definitely come with preconceived notions of how they learn. And the research oftentimes shows that the, you know there are better ways to learn and better ways to study and to refresh too. So, and this was a refresher. Um, yeah, I, I really liked this. I'm really glad that they published this in addition. And I would like beg people that if you're going to get involved in research, don't just use satisfaction as an outcome. Make sure you're looking at, you know, and Kirkpatrick is a great model. It's the, it's part of that whole idea of, um, I know uh, William McGahey wrote an article years ago that came out of the whole uh, research around ACLS and, and, um, and the Heart Association education research about translational science, about educa medical education as a translational science. That's very you know, similar to, to what we we're talking about, the different translational levels. So look at things like that and think about how many translational levels can I get at, even if it's in the first couple of them, um, it's good to add to the body of the literature. Any final thoughts, you guys? This great job. This is a great study. The methods are solid. You could replicate this very easily. And that's one of our goals of research is replicatability. Yeah. And, and any instructor who's interested in seeing how efficient or effective their uh, educational process is can do a study with their students and involve their students in the study itself. So Westchester uh, gets a big kudos here. They've been a uh, huge active, the EMS and, and, and paramedic department in particular have been very active with research for a very long time. So uh, a, a big hello to Rob Gurliacci and all of his team and all the students because uh, it's cool to see this all the way through the paper. So great. Great. And remember, you can get your start in EMS research too. Uh, you can put something together for our June 30th abstract deadline. Go, go to prehospitalcare.org. And you can check that out. Don't forget, thanks for joining us today, but you can be back here with us uh, at the Education Research Journal Club on Friday, April 28th, 10 a.m. Pacific, noon central. And um, remember before then, uh, Dr. Remley Crow, Dr. Tony Fernandez, uh, Dr. Bill Toon, even is there with the PCRF Clinical Journal Club on Monday, April 10th. Uh, remember, you can join us live. You can register at prehospitalcare.org. And our archives, don't forget to visit us at that YouTube channel that we have. And uh, thanks very much. And congratulations to the authors. And we will see you next time. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at www.pcrfpodcasts.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website 
at www.prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsor, Limmer Education, providing education tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey.